Okay, welcome listeners to um, All Together Now, a Beatles podcast. Say hello, Erin. Hello. <laughs> this is Karen talking, and that was Erin talking. Um, today we're going to be reviewing um, a book called When They Were Boys that was written in 2013. It was a book written by Larry Kane, who, is a, who was an American reporter. And um, I'll say a, just a few words about him and give you, um, everybody, a brief bio about him. Um, he was born in October 41, so he's essentially the same age as um, the rest of the Beatles. And um, 36 years prior, um, um, he, over the last 36 years, I should say, after he, he um, wrote his book, he was a news anchor in Philadelphia. And um, when he was a young man at 21, he was the, the only journalist who traveled with the Beatles on their 64, 65, and I think a portion of their 66 North American tours. And um, that came about because he, at that time, was a news director with WFUN Radio in Miami, and he had interviewed the Beatles at a press conference when they arrived in Miami during that first U.S. tour. And his radio station, somehow or the other, um, secured an exclusive interview with the Beatles. And he wrote uh, Brian Epstein about that. And Brian Epstein apparently wrote him back and was sufficiently impressed with whatever the you know, letter said or what the conversation was. He invited uh, Larry Kane to be essentially the traveling press person, the traveling press corps with the Beatles. And he offered him, in a letter, he offered Kane to pay him like $2,500 to cover his expenses. And apparently that wasn't quite enough. So his management, his radio management, decided to syndicate his reports in order to pay for his trip. So that was just a little kind of sidebar about how he financed his three trips with the Beatles. Um, the first book he wrote in 2003 was called Ticket to Ride, and it basically chronicles his experiences as the tra traveling press corps with the Beatles. And in 2000, that was 2003. In 2005, he wrote Lennon Revealed. And that was followed by When They Were Boys that he wrote in 2013. And he also contributed to uh, Yoko Ono's book called Memories of Lennon that was published in 20, uh, 2005. And he, he kind of had sporadic contact with the Beatles over the years you know not so much Ringo and George I don't think but Paul and John there was a fundraiser that he was at with John and and when Paul was at the White House in 2010 to accept the Library of Congress Gershwin Prize for Popular Song he was there um, just as an aside in 1994 the broadcast pioneers of Philadelphia inducted Kane into their Hall of Fame and in November of 2020 or 2002, the same um, group presented him with um, their, quote, Person of the Year Award, which is their highest honor. And with respect to Kane's intention um, with writing this book, he doesn't really, um, I didn't see that he really specified that anywhere in the beginning. Um, he does say, and I'm quoting here, he says, uh, time is the greatest enemy of history. Real events and people are distorted, exaggerated, and often forgotten. 
we are dependent on individual and collective memories. And there are so many people who try to shape their stories to suit their own biographies. That's expected. After all, what is memory but a hazy subjective reconstruction of the vivid reality of so long ago, such as the story of the Beatles. And he says, my search for characters, I'm assuming people to interview, I don't know. My search for characters was daunting. There are no doubt, quote, lies in this book because there are so many contradictory reports, but everyone gets their moment of truth. So one can assume um, he decided he wanted to tell the backstory about the Beatles pre-fame. And that was the focus of this book. Well, and to any listeners who are wondering why we chose this particular book, we had a poster earlier on the blog, why we chose Conversations with McCartney for our inaugural book. And they gave us a little too much credit and assumed it was because it had all these various methodological issues for us to go in depth on. And the truth of the matter is we chose that book because it was one that both Karen and I had on our shelves. Like they say in the NFL, the best ability is availability. And (laughs) it's really the same sort of situation with Kane. This is a book that Karen was able to access electronically. And it's one that my library system had that was easy for me to access. So Mm -hmm. we are going to try and get some more difficult to access books. But that's really the main reason that we went with Kane this time. Yeah. So we, we go with books that we have and, and also make an attempt to kind of switch things up. So we wouldn't want to review, you know, too many books in a row that was like a John biography or a Paul biography. So we do kind of try to kind of switch things up and, and um, you know, have some variety, I guess, in our reviews. Exactly. Because that also allows us to analyze different areas. So having said that, we're now going to go through the formula of categories, which we went through last time. (laughs) And we're going to start, of course, with the first category of the primary versus secondary and which one when they were boys falls into. And this is certainly a secondary source. It is a biography and it is a biography that is limited in scope in that it stays within a relatively short period of time chronologically. And there's nothing wrong with that because one thing that allows you to do as a writer is go more in depth and also to spend more page time on a narrow window of time because the reality is as an author that you have a word count. And if you're trying to cover the entire scope of the Beatles story in one book, there are certain areas that you're just not going to be able to concentrate on. So this is absolutely a secondary source. But one thing that you're supposed to do when you get a book is look at the sources that a secondary source uses. And so the first thing I do with any Beatles book, regardless of who it's by, is I flip to the very back and I look first off to see, do they have a work cited? And then I also look to see, okay, who's in their bibliography? Who are they citing? What primary sources? What secondary sources? Kane has a decent-sized biography, and he has about 19 primary sources in that bibliography, and that was on a casual perusal by my count. It could be one or two more, one or two less. The issue is that basically all of those are memoirs. Mm -hmm. All of his primary sources fall under one category. 
And the problem there is that memoirs are primary sources, but they are also the most subjective primary sources that historians have to deal with. So that's something to keep in mind when we're dealing with Kane. And can I interject or ask you a question right now? I went through the bibliography as well, and I was looking for um, indications of personal interviews because I got the impression there were personal interviews in the book, but I wasn't sure. Was that your impression, or do you think they were all quotes from, from memoirs? I think it was a mix, and the problem is that because Kane doesn't cite sources, you don't know. Yeah. So there are large chunks of dialogue where he is quoting paragraphs upon paragraphs of people, and you don't know whether those are from direct interviews with Kane Mm -hmm. or whether they are lifted entirely from the memoirs. Right, because he says, sorry, just to interrupt again, he said, my search for characters was daunting, which sounds like it would be searching for people to interview um, present day, you know, when he was writing the book. Yeah. And it's not clear at all that, that those interviews existed or if they're cited, they're not cited. No, they're not. And also because they're not cited, you don't know what dates they're from. You don't know what decades they're from. You don't know again, whether this is from Kane's personal interviews with these people from the 1960s or whether they're interviews from the 2000s, you have no clue unless there are very few times where he does include that information. But it's very frustrating because, again, you are given these large chunks of dialogue, and it is firsthand information in a lot of cases, but you can't properly assess the evidence because you're not given all the information you need to properly assess the evidence. Mm -hmm. And to go back to that issue of memoirs, One of the issues with Kane is that we only have the one type of primary source evidence, and those are the memoirs and the interviews. And so we have various instances where Kane will give us version A and sometimes version B. Sometimes he only gives us version A, and he never offers the opportunity to use more credible primary sources. And there's a great example of this. Again, there's a book I can't recommend highly enough for anyone who's interested in the American Civil War or Abraham Lincoln, and it's called Lincoln's Voice. And the book is about John Hay and John Nicolay, and they were Lincoln's secretaries throughout his presidential administration. And in, I think it's the 1880s, 1890s, they wrote a 12 volume biography of Abraham Lincoln. And (laughs) what would happen is that because this was being published when certain figures in the history were still alive, this was a very popular book and it gained a lot of popular attention. It was serialized in a magazine before it was published in book form. You would have very prominent people, former congressmen, former cabinet members, generals, who after a part of it was published, would publicly say, well, no, they got this wrong because they said that I met with Lincoln on this day over this issue and my memory is bulletproof and we actually met and we talked about this and this is how it went. So it would almost appear to be the same issue that you have with Kane, where you have one retrospective account versus another retrospective account. But what Hay and Nicolay did is that whenever this occurred, they would say, hey, look what I have. This is my personal diary from 1863. 
or this is my secretarial from 1863. Let's look and see what it says. Huh, January 12th, 1863, Senator from Connecticut meeting with Lincoln, 11 o'clock, purpose of meeting, patronage appointment. Hmm. And Kay and Nicolay would say is, my contemporaneous documentation trumps your 30-year-old retrospective memory. Mm-hmm. Absolutely right. Yeah. And my issue with Kane is that we get nothing like that. It's all one type of highly subjective primary source. But that's yeah. one of the issues with the bibliography. And later on in, in our podcast, we're going to kind of specify... We're going to detail those those inconsistencies and errors, Aaron. Yes, so absolutely. people know. Yeah, we're going to kind of mine dig more into that later in the podcast. So the other issue with Kane's bibliography is you look at it, and for one thing, in 2013 he is using sources of significant declining reputation. For example, he has Ray Coleman's Lennon biography in his bibliography. And he also has Philip Norman's 1981 edition of Shout. And there are several issues with this. Certainly by the time we get to 2013, you have a methodologically superior group biography of the band, Jonathan Gould's Can't Buy Me Love. That is a book that cites sources. And it is also a book where the author Mm -hmm has not admitted that they were unfair to Paul McCartney in the book. And that was information that was available to Kane when he sat down to write this book. In fact, one of the other sources that Kane includes in this book is Michael Brocken and Melissa Davis's The Beatles Bibliography. And that's basically an annotated bibliography of Beatles books. And Brocken and Davis in that book are scathing in their evaluations of both Coleman and Norman. Hmm. And they acknowledge the various methodological issues. They acknowledge the bias. They acknowledge the hagiography. And it's baffling to me why you would choose Brocken and Davis and put them in your bibliography and yet completely ignore their evaluations, which for the most part, I agree with and still use sources that have been widely devalued, such as Coleman or Norman. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's just the beginning of that particular issue. Again, that's something Mm -hmm. that we'll return to because we're going to talk about Beatles historiography and how that's one of the issues with Kane's book. But I've been talking about one category for I don't know how many minutes and we need to move (laughs) on. So the second category, of course, that we have to deal with is chronology. And this is a book that is published in 2013. And yet there are various aspects of this book that seem to be frozen in the shout narrative. That new evidence that had certainly come available in the 80s, 90s, and what have you. And I'm not saying that all of it is bulletproof, but I am am saying that it's primary source evidence and therefore can't be ignored, is frankly ignored by Kane. 
So it's a book really that's published almost at the same time as the first volume of Tune In. But it also offers a very starkly different interpretation to various issues gives us. Yeah. <clears throat> Sorry, just to interrupt. He he also had Lewis in, in his bibliography. It wasn't obviously Tune In. It was another book that I – it was Beatles Day by Day, I think it was. I can't remember. I'd have to double check. Yeah, yeah. So it's there, but it's it's not showing up in his interpretations. Right. And that's always something important to keep in mind is there – just because a book is published in the same year – as someone else's book, the presumption is that they didn't have that evidence available to them. So because of publishing schedules, it's just too difficult to get a hold of someone else's book. So I assume if I see books that are published in the same year that one book didn't have access to the other's research is what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. So moving on from chronology, you have the issue of narrative. And this book is an interesting one in that one of the ways you can tell where a book falls in the various narratives is the stance it takes on the major debates in Beatles historiography. And in particular, who broke up the band and whether John and Paul were musical equals. And Kane doesn't really deal with those so much. He really has very few comments regarding the breakup. One that does stick out to me is a comment that they were pretty much guaranteed to break up following Brian's death. And that's a paraphrasing of what Kane says, but it's fairly accurate. But other than that, he doesn't really deal with the issue. And in regards to the Lennon-McCartney songwriting partnership, again, it's not something that he really deals with. He does have various instances in the book where he calls both John and Paul geniuses. But other than that, he doesn't deal so much with those debates. He also does devote more attention to George than you get in a lot of Shout-era narrative depictions. And he goes back and forth. There are some issues that he adopts a a shout era narrative view on. And then there are others like George where he seemingly changes his stance. Having said all that, it is certainly a John centric book. Yes. Which is one of the markers of the shout. <laughs> narrative. Mm -hmm. Do you have any comments on that? Um, well, I'm, I'm wondering whether I should hold off till we kind of summarize at the end. Um, because then it could get a little tangential. So no, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. All right. And then finally, the last category we're dealing with is subcategory. And so this is a book where you have a reporter who knew the Beatles fairly well and is heavily reliant on interviews with them or interviews on people they knew for their sources. So really this falls under a category like a Ray Connolly, although I prefer Connolly's work more than I do Kane's, or something like the Ray Coleman, John and Paul bios, because this follows in that similar vein. So those are the sort of books that you would compare to Kane's work. Mm -hmm. 
Do you have anything to add? Nope. I'm just, I'm letting you go. <laughs> I'm well, just a captive audience. Yeah. No, I have like, I have a lot of um, sort of observations and, and thoughts, but I think they really do fit at the end when we start kind of detailing some of the, or giving evidence to the obvious sort of errors. Yeah. So, you know, you just, you continue for sure. Well, I think the next thing to talk about is errors. Okay. And I want to make it clear that I believe every Beatles book has at least a handful of errors, but not all errors are created equal. And so we want to distinguish between the types of errors because some are simply more consequential than others. You can have what I regard as accidental, inconsequential errors, basically stupid mistakes. And this is where the author gets minor facts wrong. And mm -hmm. I admit, unfortunately, I have a few of these in my book. And the most glaring is I have a discussion of the George Harrison documentary where the director was Martin Scorsese. And in the first edition of my book, somehow Martin Scorsese became Oliver Stone. Oh, and yeah. to this day, I have no clue how that happened. <laughs> that is because funny, though. <laughs> I had Martin Scorsese in my notes. I watched the documentary. I believe I have Scorsese in the bibliography. But somehow, between my brain and my fingers, as I typed it up, Scorsese became Oliver Stone. <laughs> it's a stupid error that should mm -hmm. not be book that I didn't but funny catch. but funny you have to say that's a funny error kind of interesting to imagine like I yeah. said on the an Oliver Stone uh documentary on on George Harrison <laughs> but it's not a mistake that's going to fundamentally change no, your view sure. of an essential part of Beatles history yeah so the second type of error are those types of errors and an example of one of these would be in one of the more recent editions of Peter Brown's The Love You Make, and I cannot remember what date it was published, but I just remember that Anthony DeCurtis wrote the foreword, you have Brown's discussing John's first meeting with Paul. And we know what John's thoughts were because John told Hunter Davies in the authorized biography in 1968, I have thought to myself, he's as good as me. But... The way Brown relays it in the book, John thinks he's half as good as me. Now, oh, I've, mm -hmm. I've always assumed that that was an editing error, that someone moved the word half and then didn't correct it, and that it was an accidental mistake. But even then, it's a mistake that fundamentally changes the meaning of John's sentence. Mm-hmm. Because there's a very big difference between John Lennon meeting Paul McCartney for the first time and thinking he's as good as me, as opposed to John Lennon meeting Paul McCartney for the first time and thinking he's half as good as me. Yeah. So that's what I mean when I'm talking about errors of consequence. The third type of error is where the evidence appears to tell you that the author is deliberately misrepresenting evidence to the reader, either by omitting credible primary source evidence or simply phrasing it in a way that gives you the incorrect impression. 
And this for me is the largest weakness of Kane's work because Kane does this repeatedly. And one of the examples of this is towards the end of the book, Kane is talking about the ousting of Pete Best. And the actual quote that we have from John, Karen verified this, is from the authorized biography, which incidentally is a book that Kane has in his bibliography. And John is discussing the meeting that Brian had with Pete, and Neil was there as well, where Pete actually got sacked. And John's references, John's reference to that, the direct quote is, we were cowards. But how Cain phrases it in the book is he says, John described Paul and George as cowards. And I'd have to look at my notes, but I think the implication is also that Cain appears to be using that direct quote to encompass the entire firing of Pete and not just their absence from Pete's firing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's... Erin, can I add? Can I add too that that not only is that um, bit of evidence in in Hunter Davies' biography, but in subsequent interviews John did, I found one on YouTube fairly easily, where he was very clear about why they sacked Pete. You know, it was not because we talked about this a little bit more about the came proje- projecting the the story as you know Pete was just good looking and they all got jealous and and especially Paul and sacked him. Where you've got contemporary interviews of John, you know, in the 70s saying, no way, that's not even true. Well, and see, the issue to me isn't even really why Pete got sacked. It's, it's, that, yeah. it's that methodologically you have a primary source that Kane has misrepresented and also primary sources on that debate that Kane flat out ignores because you have Neil Aspinall in the authorized biography, again, which is in Kane's bibliography on page 142 saying, Paul didn't lead the sacking of Pete. That was George. George, yeah. And you can agree or disagree with Neil's take, but what you can't do is flat out ignore it, which is exactly right. what Kane does. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the areas where you have this seeming misrepresentation of evidence, but you also have it in numerous other instances. Kane is still reiterating the story of Mimi dodging bombs on the way to the hospital to go visit John when newspaper archives have proven that didn't happen. And mm-hmm. that's been discredited via documentation for decades, I think. And yet Kane is still doing that story in 2013. Yeah. You have Kane arguing that Paul wanted to kick Stu out of the band to take his position as bass player. You have many years from now in Kane's bibliography, you have Paul in that book flat out stating, I did not want to be bass player. And once again, you have Cain ignoring a primary source. And I want to make it very clear. I am not saying that everything that disagrees with Cain is credible and every source that agrees with Cain is not. That's not the point I'm trying to make. 
The mm -hmm. point I'm trying to make is you can't ignore a primary source just because it doesn't agree with your interpretation. And Kane does that again and again mm -hmm. and again. Mm -hmm. You also have Kane writing a sentence impression that John supported George wholeheartedly from 1970 to 1975, personally and professionally. And the problem with that is that it is ignoring May Pang's eyewitness account of George carrying the sunglasses off of John's face and saying, where were you when I needed you? Mm -hmm. And again, you can dispute, you can analyze the evidence and you can say, okay, maybe that was the worst point of John and George's relationship. Maybe they supported each other wholeheartedly every single other day except that. But you can't ignore it. And that's exactly mm -hmm. what Cain does so many times. And that's that's such an important point, Erin, because I know that there's um, there's you know people in fandom who have issues with Lewison. And their issues though really do relate to a matter of his interpretation of events not that he excluded an event or didn't you know i'm thinking of blackpool you know the presumed event where um john was required to choose between his parents well he presented this is the the common narrative this is my my take on it and you can agree or not agree with that versus kane who just totally eliminates the other story and the other facts that that may not support his his chosen narrative Right. And even he does this with secondary sources, because you have a comment from Kane, which in 2013 is curious, to say the least, where he describes Shout as the gold standard of Beatles biographies. And yet, if you look at Kane's version of George Harrison in this book, his George Harrison that people tell him about, that eyewitnesses tell him about, that interviews tell him about, is warm, he's thoughtful, he's generous, and according to a lot of these sources, was every bit the musical equal of John Lennon and Paul McCartney, he simply was not given the opportunity to demonstrate that for several years. And again, that's something that you can argue about. But the reality is, that is the exact opposite of the George Harrison that we get in Shout. In Shout, George is negative. I don't think book he's marginalized he's caricaturized and the only time he writes anything good is when he's taking inspiration from John Lennon so how can you have this gold standard of Beatles biographies which number one the author has acknowledged by this time by the time that Kane is published in 2013 Norman has acknowledged that that is a book that was unfair, at least in part, to Paul McCartney, mm -hmm. 2002 forward of, of Shout, and also have the completely opposite version to your version of George Harrison. How can you still possibly describe that book as the gold standard of mm -hmm. Beatles? You, you know, it strikes me, Aaron, <clears throat> um, that Kane. Not a mystery. Cain just cherry picked through his bibliography and found information that supported what he already felt to be true. And you know, when you when you map out, you know, how how could one rely upon this source in this way and, and not 
in other ways and all the other areas in which he was so clearly um, incorrect or, or even misleading. It just strikes me that he, he met the Beatles. He liked John, didn't like Paul so much, didn't really know or get to know maybe Ringo and George. And he wrote a book that supported that because I can't find any other reason why there'd be these galactic errors in the well, story. Then my fundamental problem with Kane is this. What I want from any Beatles source is, is this source going to get me closer to an accurate version of Beatles history? And Kane then apparently doesn't want to give you that. Larry Kane wants to give you Larry Kane's version of Beatles history. And they are yeah. not the same thing. I don't want yeah. Larry Kane's version of Beatles history, frankly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, he, when he wrote Ticket to Ride, I was thinking of that, comparing that to this book. He wrote about his experience being on tour with them. So you're going to get, I've never read the book. Um, I, I just perused it, but I haven't read it. But you're going to get sort of more of a personal account of what it was like. But you would still expect to see some degree of fact there. But that was a personal account. This book is, is a history. He's writing about their, the history of four people from birth to whatever, 18. And I would think one would have to be, if you were a reporter especially, like really objective. And you have that capacity. I enjoyed Ticket to Ride. I read it in preparation for my book. I liked it. Again, it's subjective because it's a memoir. Mm -hmm. There was a moment in Ticket to Ride which... I was jogged in my memory reading what he discusses in this book, because in this book, Kane argues that while John took the lead on most social justice issues, when it came to discrimination against Paul took the lead, yeah. Paul took the lead in that particular area when he told them that one of their con concerts was going to be segregated. Paul was the first one who stood up and said, no, we're not doing it tell mm -hmm. them if they're going to segregate, we're not doing it, and mm -hmm. that the others joined in. Mm -hmm. And yet, if you read Ticket to Ride, there is a part in that book where Kane implies rather heavily that he wondered whether Paul was racially prejudiced against <laughs> Africans. So this is, this is the quote from Ticket to Ride. Paul is giving an interview, and I can't remember exactly what it is Paul says, but Paul uses the phrase, some of my best friends are colored. And so Kane's quote in the book is his reference, some of my best friends are colored, was a telltale phrase of subtle prejudice used oh by God. itching to profess their tolerance by claims of associating with minorities. Did that coded meaning apply in Paul's case? I can't be certain but his comments made me wonder. And that's on page 40 of Ticket to Ride. So we have gone from Ticket to Ride, which was published in 2003, mm -hmm. where Kane is speculating, at least in this time period of the 1960s, that Paul may have been subtly prejudiced to Kane in 2013, discussing how Paul is the most outspoken against racial prejudice. And he calls him, quote, colorblind. Right. So, he's actually so not prejudiced. He's, he just made it sort of a, he was colorblind. Yeah. So how did wow. we get point A to point B? Mm -hmm. That's 
that's what I would like to know. It's almost as, and I'm, this is, I'm just guessing, but the use of the word calling someone colored in the 60s was, that's what you did. There, there was no other, that was the word you used. You said Negro or you said colored. So he was, he was like almost applying 2005 or 2003 standards to a 1964 comment. Or and maybe in the interim, and then, you know, 10 years later, he realizes, oh, Maybe that's why he used that word and he changed his opinion. I don't know. Or, and maybe some of our English listeners can inform us on this. Maybe some of my best friends, et cetera, it's a loaded American phrase, but it wasn't a loaded English one. Right. Because he is an American and he's dealing with an Englishman and mm -hmm. you do get mistranslations between those two. There was a, a book mm -hmm. I read, the D-Day invasions, which was frankly, one of the most boring books in graduate school I ever had to read. But the one memorable part of it was they were having strategy meetings leading up to the D-Day invasions. And the, they got to this issue that they could not resolve at that point. And so the Americans said, okay, we can't deal with this issue now, so let's table it. And in American slang, tabling means let's set this aside and deal with it later. But at least according to this book, I don't know if this is true, in English slang, at least in that time period, tabling something meant this away and we're not dealing with it again. So the Americans made the proposal of let's table this. And in their view, the British got disproportionately upset. No, we're not tabling this. We are dealing with this now. And in the British perspective, the Americans are being completely unreasonable because this is an issue that actually needs to be resolved. And it was entirely an issue of mistranslation. And yeah. for the life of me, I can't remember how it resolved itself. But and that's two people with a common language. Yeah. So you do get issues like this. But to move away from D-Day and back to the Beatles that's a pretty jarring contrast between what Kane is saying in 2003 and what Kane is saying in 2013. Yeah. It's a total about face. It's not even shades of gray. You know, it's a total different representation of a, of an event and someone's in, and someone's character regarding that event. Well, and another issue that I had with Kane is another one of the errors, and this is one that sticks out to a lot of people because it's so blatant, is the one where Yoko is describing her first meeting with Aunt Mimi. And some people are probably chuckling because they know exactly what I'm going to say. <laughs> when Yoko discusses her first meeting with Aunt Mimi, Kane used the, uses the her quote as evidence for how strong and powerful the state because what Yoko says is that the first time she met Aunt Mimi, Uncle George just sat in the corner and nobody noticed him. The problem is he was Uncle dead. George, yes, that's probably why nobody noticed him. <laughs> no. That would explain it. The, the issue there is number one, mm -hmm. Technically, the error is Yoko's because it's, but Kay needs to address that error in one of two ways because mm -hmm. it's an obvious one that so many readers are going to see. Number one, if you have a factually incorrect memory, which you know is factually incorrect, and being dead is about as factually incorrect <laughs> as it can be, 
don't use that piece of evidence in support of your interpretation. Yeah. Or at the very least, include a note after that quote by Yoko saying, the reader must assume that this is a an errant memory of Yoko's. Perhaps there was another male relative of the Stanley family that was sitting in the corner. And or say, she may have been implying when he was alive, I bet it may just sat in a corner and kept his mouth shut. Like she, you know, she, she, in her articulation may have just kind of had a little bit of a, uh, you know, a flight of memory and saying, I could see someone saying, Oh yeah, Mimi was really strong and really assertive. And boy, if uncle George was around, I bet you he didn't have much to say. And somehow that got, translated into he was there right but what you can't do is ignore the error especially when it's that obvious it's your author's responsibility to note the discrepancy is what i'm saying but you really shouldn't use a factually inaccurate piece of evidence to support your interpretation especially have to know is factually inaccurate so earlier Erin you had you talked about the different categories of errors and how there's you know that first category that it's kind of maybe the second one where it's you know it's it's not going to change the narrative but you know I got to think I'm thinking as you're as we're talking that when you add all those up it can change the narrative. Not that anybody's going to think Uncle George is now alive, but, <laughs> event- <laughs> but eventually those errors as they add up can, you know, and you see this in fandom where they'll, they'll, they'll sort of state really outrageous things because all those errors have kind of collected into their own narrative. Yeah, that's a very valid point. At the same time, I would rather read a book that is riddled with minor factual errors then read a book where I believe that the author is deliberately misrepresenting evidence. Right. And, but I think sometimes people don't know the difference. Like they, they might not, they might not understand, depending on the air, they might not get that. This is just, if it's, if it's a year, you know, it was the wrong year of 62, not 63 or whatever. I mean, it depends on the air, but it just seems that when there's, taking that away from the deliberate misrepresentation, excuse me, I I just think it shapes how people view, view the Beatles or view individual Beatles or view their behavior in certain circumstances. Um, Anyway, that's, that's sort of my, my thought on that. Well, I'm trying to remember, I can't remember what historian it is who says one error begets another to justify itself. Mm. Yeah. All errors do have consequences. Again, the issue for me is I do not appreciate the implication that an author is trying to pull the wool over my eyes. Yeah. They know, then tell me that. Be honest. If they can't choose between source A, B, and C, then give me source A, B, and C and allow me to do so. But don't omit primary source evidence that you know exists because the source is in your bibliography simply Mm. it doesn't fit with the version of events that you prefer can i ask you a question that's probably fitting into error one i don't know um but it's really much ado about nothing but it, it did kind of stick with me he he references he says that paul as a kid was called little Polly was called Paul Polly. And I had never read anywhere in any book where that was the case. And even Mike 
McCartney never talked about, he was called Mick by his father. And there's a letter he published in his book where his father wrote him a letter when he was in the hospital and he broke his arm and he referred to him as Mick. But, but Mike never said that Paul was called Polly. So, I mean, that's much ado about nothing. But it just struck me as one more of those, like, where did this come from? And it seemed, it seemed the sort of, I, what I was remembering when I read that was, an interview that Elliot Mintz had done with John Lennon, um, and he was no fan of Paul, apparently, and he was interviewing John and Yoko, and he, he asked John about Polly, and John got angry and said, what's this Polly business? His name is Paul, and then they went on to talk about their relationship, so, you know, I'm not a historian, but I approach it from more of a psychological perspective, and I'm thinking... It seems these heirs are not heirs, really. They're sort of intentional plants that are really pejorative. Well, and that's where one of the greatest weaknesses with Cain is his lack of citations. Because he states things, but he never tells you where he gets the information from. Mm -hmm. And that's, frankly, a problem because you have no clue is he getting this from his interviews? And to go back a little bit, one of the other issues dealing with Kane and his omission of primary source evidence that doesn't fit with his thesis or deliberately misrepresenting evidence by paraphrasing it in a way where it loses its actual meaning, then that begs the question, what evidence did he omit? What did he yeah. edit with his interviews? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did, he select his, how did he select his evidence? Because if you can't trust him on such basic elements, what mm-hmm. can you trust him on? Yeah. Is, he, is he misquoting other people? Right. Because you he, know, had, he, he misquoted John Lennon. Yeah. And, you know, another exhibit A regarding that is he says in, his, in this book that the uh, the media, the, the nickname Macca was just a media invention. Now, Mike McCartney says very clearly that that was their nickname from school. He had it, Paul had it. And I think Tony Bramwell also said the same thing. So where did that come from, that this was a media invention? Um, it, there again, not a big error, but it builds on this kind of weird narrative that just doesn't fit the facts. There are parts of Kane's work that seem as if he formed interpretations in the shout narrative and simply doesn't want to change them. Mm-hmm. And again, I find that frustrating because when you have primary source evidence, it can't be ignored. Even if you, you don't like it, you can analyze the evidence and you can argue against it, but you can't refuse to acknowledge its very existence, which is mm-hmm. what Kane does repeatedly. Mm-hmm. And another issue is that you have no designation of the different types of sources. So he doesn't explain one of the elements regarding Yoko. And I'm just using her as an example is that when Yoko says something like John felt this or John said this, and we have no outside reinforcement for that from another source, 
then that's hearsay. And that's the same as when Paul says, well, John told me this in a phone conversation in 1974. If we have no other evidence for it, it's hearsay. It's a secondhand statement mm -hmm. that can't be proven. Mm -hmm. Yet hearsay is treated the same as unverified eyewitness accounts, as multiple eyewitness accounts. Mm -hmm. It's all jumbled together. And according to Kane, apparently, it's all equally credible unless he doesn't like what it says and he ignores it. And he ignores it. Yeah. And he, speaking of sort of his overemphasis in some areas and ignoring sort of other areas, he really, and I think because he relied heavily on Pauline Sutcliffe's book, but he really, to me, really over, overemphasized John's relationship with Stu. And not that Stu wasn't an important figure in John's life, but he just seemed to go way overamped on that. And, really didn't say much about Paul and John at all in this book beyond some reference to them kind of being geniuses and being competitive. Like there was not sort of any mention of their relationship and he was on tour with them for like three years and there was well, nothing. And that's interesting because I think Ticket to Ride and Lennon Revealed actually have significant quotes and regarding the closeness of John and Paul's relationship and hmm. that according to Kane, he didn't see tension or arguments between the two of them when he was on tour with them. So what I liked about Kane, because I don't want everyone to feel as if we're piling on him. <laughs> exactly. He had a good section on Brian Epstein because he talks about the positives and the negatives and he deals with Brian's strengths as a manager and he also deals hmm. with Brian's weaknesses as a manager. And he also has some interesting comments on the politics of writing or covering Beatles history. He makes a comment when he's discussing, he wrote the foreword for Tony Bramwell's memoir, Magical Mystery Tours. And according to Kane, he wondered whether writing the memoir for that book, which is, shall we say, not overly complimentary of Yoko Ono, would exile him and permanently from doing inter doing any interviews with Yoko or anyone in the <clears throat> going. Mm -hmm. And he was pleasantly surprised to discover, no, it didn't. And he chalks that up to everyone wants to be interviewed. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. So I do think it's an interesting look at the politics there. Excuse me. Mm -hmm. Of trying to, trying to serve several when it comes to Beale's historiography. Yeah. So the ultimate frustration, I think, with Kane, if it was just like getting back to the whole heirs um, categorization, if it were just a lot of those, you know, heirs that would be, oh, I, I misnamed somebody or I got the year wrong or, you know, that was just the editor didn't proofread the, the, the draft properly, whatever. That's one thing that would be annoying, but sort of forgivable, I guess. But it's just the misrepresentation that really bothered me. Like I, when I read the book, I just kind of more or less said like, what? Every time I read something that didn't make sense to me or I knew was factually wrong. And then you think if you're in fandom, you've got people who are new to fandom who are just get their heads filled with all this wrong information. And then you, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of Mark Lewis and then saying, you know, he thinks John now is getting a really sort of bad rap in social media because there's 
there's such an emphasis on the parts of his personality and behavior that are not very complimentary and there's no context to it or it's just it's only talked about it's cherry picked well and it's it's really crucial what you what you hinted at one way to look at every Beatles book is to imagine that you are reading your first Beatles book and that's a good way to look at the information and really realize misleading some of these books are and how that can misinform someone from the very beginning. But to go back to the issue of bibliographies, when you have a book in your bibliography, you are basically saying, I used this as a research tool. So I assign this book a certain level of credibility. It's influencing my interpretations and it's providing me with primary or secondary sources that I'm going to use in my writing. So it's simply baffling that you have Kane with these books like Many Years From Now or The Beatles, The Authorized Biography, which is a primary source, or Brockton and Davis or any other number of sources that he simply flat out ignores large segments of information in them or sources in them or quotes in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And getting back to, I think he, he minds the information in a way that sort of comports with what he already believes. And that's really surprising for someone who lived his life, you know, as a reporter. Again, I find it unhelpful to yeah. to be blunt. I don't want Larry Kane's version of the Beatles. I want the most accurate version of the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just, in my mind, went to a comparison. I don't know if this is the right comparison to make, Aaron, because we, we talked about when you compare one book to another. But I was what came to mind was Cynthia Lennon's book, John, that had a lot of errors in it. And Bill Harry had gone through that book um, and, and listed all, you know, she had, you know, date errors and stuff like that. But she also had, I remember her saying that, you know, All My Loving, I think it was All My Loving, that was or for me to you. One of those songs Paul wrote that John wrote for her. And he, anyway, he went through the whole the whole book and he stated the airs. And Cynthia's response was like, tough. <laughs> you know, this is my memory. This is my memoir. And I don't care whether you think it's factually correct or not. And, and that I compared to this book because he's, he's, he took on the task of writing an, uh, an objective historical account of someone's of the life of four people from birth to 18 and he still made it a personal thing and that's the difference to me i don't expect objectivity from a memoir i do expect at least an attempt at objectivity from a biography right yeah is there anything else you wanted to add karen um, um, no, I think I think we've probably outlined all the the issues that we have and what we struggled with in terms of the book. So, um, so how do we wrap this up here? Did you want to, you know, um, discuss it? And I think we end. We like to end these discussions by talking about where this book stands in sort of Beatles historiography and and recommendations about reading it or not. 
I think that there is some valuable primary source interviews in here. But again, the problem is because he doesn't cite sources, you don't know which interviews are his and you don't know what material is taken from the various memoirs. So the reality is that that's the valuable part of this book, reading the actual interviews. Kane's interpretations of evidence are irrelevant because they're flawed and we've mm -hmm. demonstrated they're flawed. So I would certainly not classify this as an essential book. If I had the choice as a researcher, I would read the interviews and nothing else. So for, for the, you know, the average Beatles fan who just wants to read a good Beatles book, I would say give this one a pass. Absolutely. Yeah. That concludes this podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And please stay tuned for the next episode when Aaron and I review Hunter Davies' book, The Beatles, The Authorized Biography. <laughs>